0: Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, patients, families, colleagues, and just plain curious folk to the PMR Report. Our podcast is brought to you by the University of Texas at Houston in conjunction with McGovern School of Medicine, Department of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation. We bring you another segment of medical explanation, reviews of current literature, expert opinions, debates, and just plain interesting stuffs. All right, so this is the inaugural podcast um, for the University of Texas at Houston Health Science Center McGovern School of Medicine. Yeah, the title is a little bit of a mouthful. Um, This is our first podcast. We're recording on site here at uh, TIER, the Institute for Research and Rehabilitation. My name is Paolo Mimbella. I am currently a PGY3 with the Department of PM&R here at the University of Texas at Houston um our first podcast is going to be interviewing a very informal interview with dr ajay sambasavan he is uh actually an alum of our program who then went off to fellowship at uh university of Is this New Jersey? Um, Rutgers. 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 Yep. Rutgers, Rutgers, New Jersey School of What is it? Medicine and Dentistry. Uh, I think it's it's, like. Yeah, it's
1: it's changed. Yeah, so now it's just Rutgers.
0: (laughs) So Dr. is one of our old uh, old alum, Um, he's come back, and now he's an attending physician with our department here. And um, we're gonna go over just some brief points, something that we think may be interesting to um, both practitioners, either in training, attending, or even uh, patients themselves, regarding um, corticosteroids and interventional uh, treatments with corticosteroids. So the title of Dr. Simbasivan's Grand Rounds presentation yesterday on December 15th, 2016 at the University of Texas was Steroids, an Interventional Perspective, Um, So we'll just go over a few of the points that um, I believe would be interesting to um, patients, family members, and practitioners themselves. So Dr. Simbasivan gave us uh, a little bit of a uh, background on the history, and I'll let him kind of take over as far as um, kind of when steroids were first discovered. Um, There was a Nobel Prize in both, I believe, medicine and physiology, Yes, that was award- awarded.
1: Right. We've been using steroids for quite some time, over fifty years. Um, but uh, we we can you know we can attribute a lot of what we know for the steroids and their anti-inflammatory properties, which is what we uh, exploit with them most often, to three gentlemen from who were awarded the Nobel Prize in 1950: um, Edwards Kendall, Tatus Richstein, Re- uh, and Philip Hank. They uh, studied the adrenal glands and figured out that there are hormones inside that um, have anti-inflammatory properties. And from that, we now use those properties um, throughout the body to direct uh, treatment treatment for painful painful pathologies. Okay.
0: Just because I'm a curious person, um, the their discovery was it was it based on all the steroids that are produced in the adrenals, or was it
1: based on just kind of Corticosteroids themselves, glucocorticoids, and their effect, or they—I I believe it was for molecules within the adrenal gland that have inflammatory, anti-inflammatory process. Okay, yeah.
0: okay. Which, as you were saying, is kind of essentially that goldmine that we found that we exploit, like, like you said, right. those effects for for treatment uh, as treatment options for patients. Right. So, could you tell us a little bit about glucocorticoids?
1: Sure. When, when we talk about steroids, they're um, Steroids are hormones. Um, corticosteroids, all the ste- or majority of the steroids are made in the adrenal glands. The corticosteroids are uh, specific because they're derived from the cortex of the adrenal glands. And within that, there are three of them. There's androgens, there are mineralocorticoids, and there's glucocorticoids. We exploit the glucocorticoids for our musculoskeletal interventional practice because those are the ones that have the anti-inflammatory process uh, or benefits Um, and they're unique because they bind to a glucocorticoid receptor and they also have an involvement with glucose metabolism but we try not to use that we're really using them for the anti-inflammatory components that they uh... they offer and how does it how do they do that It's it's pretty complicated a lot of biochemistry involved however thing we do know it's a lot of downstream regulation of cytokines inflammatory cells cell mediated immunity and vascular um, kind of a cascade of events that occur in the inflammatory process they down regulate that so it and we see that clinically because you don't see a benefit until that cascade kicks in. Okay. So when you use a steroid, you're not going to see the benefit immediately because it's not an immediate effect. It's this cascade that takes a while to kick in, and maybe 48 to 72 hours is when it really starts to downregulate that inflammatory process, which is when patients might perceive a benefit from the injection or the oral steroid that they're taking.
0: Okay. Just to kind of recap for um, for some of our non-medically or highly scientifically trained, um, listeners out there. What Dr. Simbaseman talking about is the adrenals are two glands that sit right on top of your kidneys. They have a whole host of effects of, of basically functions that they have to take care of in the body. Um, probably the most famous for anyone that wasn't, that's not medically trained. I mean, I heard about it when I was even in high school, um, is kind of that stress response. um, but so what he's covering is those glands also release are also responsible for producing and releasing certain hormones or certain steroids that have effects that essentially really bring down any inflammatory process, and that discovery is is what he's talking about when it comes to exploiting that particular compound um, um, therapeutically, using it to to treat certain painful inflammatory conditions. Um, and we'll probably get into that a little bit later, but um, he did touch upon one interesting uh, point and that is that steroids themselves, and I think this is important for patients to understand, for practitioners to explain clearly, clearly to their patients so that they understand the expectation of this kind of treatment. And that is that these effects take some time. So even though you may get the medication you know, in the perfect location, um, it takes some time for these, for these meds to have their effect, for these compounds to have their anti-inflammatory effect.
1: Absolutely. And it, it, I, I feel for patients because it's probably pretty frustrating if you come into a clinic with a lot of pain in a certain area and you find this doctor who's willing to treat it and he sticks a needle or does something interventionally to try to address that pain. And then he tells you that it's going to take three days for you to feel any benefit. And
0: sometimes patients feel a little bit even worse for a little bit right after they've because, I mean, you've put a needle, you've kind of driven and traumatized tissue to get the med into the right place, right?
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. We do our best to try to guide it uh, using imaging techniques to avoid things that are sensitive and to use local anesthetic, uh, you know, generously to make it comfortable. However, you know, there is trauma with the needle. We also try to use the smallest needle that we can to get away with it. Some medications that you inject, you know, inhibit how small you can, the needle you can use. But with that, there is definitely some trauma. Um, And the other interesting thing is we often use steroid, uh, lidocaine or some sort of anesthetic with it. That will cause them to feel relatively comfortable uh, immediately after the injection or the procedure that's done. However, the duration of action, that anesthetic is going to wear off. So there is probably going to be a period of time when they had some benefit from the local anesthetic. That wears off. They go back to their baseline level of pain, and then it takes a couple days before that steroid kicks in. So that transition might be quite uncomfortable. And I think it's important to discuss that with the patient so they're aware of it, so they know what to expect.
0: Okay. So when a patient comes in and says, hey, I have this particular pain complaint... And you find that it's amenable with this with maybe a steroid injection. Absolutely. You give them an injection which is a compounded injection. It's both steroid and a local anesthetic. Maybe they feel a little bit better, but you know, what you're saying is it's important to discuss with them so that they understand this temporary, better feeling that you have right now, or relief that you're having right now. It's probably going to go away in a couple of hours, that's what you're saying?
1: Yes, depending on the anesthetic that you use, they have different lengths of duration, different actions, Um, so typically it will go away before the steroid kicks in. Okay. So there probably will be a period of time where the pain is good, it probably will go away, and then hopefully the steroid kicks in and does its job to, to calm it down.
0: So if it was a partic- so if it was a particular pain syndrome that was going to respond to the steroid, when would you expect the steroid to actually take its effect?
1: Usually, so there's differences um, in the chemical properties of the different steroids. Uh, okay. There's different steroids out there okay. um, for different purposes. They when they study them in the lab, they have different properties, different onset of action, different durations of action. Um, clinically, it's not so evident that these differences uh, manifest in patients noting that their pain is better, um, you know, with X-steroid versus Y steroid. They often the studies haven't been convincing that one steroid is significantly better than the other consistently. There are studies that show head to-head some are better than others, but consistency has not been there. And with that, in, in general, it takes about 72 hours to start seeing a lot of these effects. Okay. Uh, I would say in about a week, uh, you know, within three days to a week is when the steroid should be working. So if they're gonna see an effect from the steroid, it should be in that 72 to to you know seven day period. The three to seven day period is when I would expect that steroid to really be working. If it was directed at a target. Okay. Um, if it's taken orally, and there are some caveats, it depends if the dose was right, if it was taken up by the vasculature, if it was broken down quickly. There's things that we can't control, but this is just a very general statement. When I, I see patients in the clinic, I'd often say, you can expect, I'm hoping, if we're going to see a response, it'll probably be between three and seven days when when you notice some change. Okay.
0: Um so let's say 2 weeks, 3 weeks, 4 weeks goes by and the patient tells you hey doc they come back for follow up, you know, for at 4 weeks and they tell you I didn't feel any better at any point throughout, you know, after after the procedure. What what do you think at that point?
1: Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. That's a very common scenario. Mm-hmm. Um and part of it is difficult. We need to tease out a few different things. One could be, did, I, did we get the right pain generator? Okay. okay, so was the target, wherever we administered the medicine, appropriate for their symptoms? Um, how do I tease that out? Well, as I mentioned before, usually we're using some sort of lidocaine or some sort of anesthetic. Um, it would be, I would expect that anesthetic to calm down their pain immediately uh, after the injection. So I would ask them, I understand that the steroid might, might not have given you much benefit. So two to three weeks later, you didn't feel much benefit. But initially, when you left the room, did you feel better? Did it feel numb? Okay. Right? If it felt numb, then I would think that whatever the pathology is that we injected was probably a significant component of the pain. If it didn't feel numb or if it didn't get better, then there's probably something else mediating that pain and we need to look at a different target.
0: So that's when sometimes you do diagnostic blocks before you actually do a therapeutic.
1: Exactly. And then sometimes we mix it. A lot of times when I'm going into a joint, I'll mix the steroid with a lidocaine. And that'll give you the best of both worlds. Immediately before they leave, I'll have an idea, and sometimes I write it on my note, the patient had immediate benefit from this injection. Because okay. they might not remember it you know, a week later when their pain comes back. Okay. But if I, if I know right away... Does that Did that local anesthetic help? I can write it in my note, and then it's in the chart, and we always know going forward that is a main pain, pain generator. Okay. The other thing you mentioned was a diagnostic block. A lot of areas of the body, I find it difficult to clinically tease out what the pain generator is, and one thing I often use, and specifically if it's coming from a joint or if it's coming from things outside of the joint, one way I tease that out is... Um, Putting numbing medicine into the joint using image guidance, so confirming that it's in the joint, and then asking if their symptoms change. And that is, I find it very useful to tease out what the pain generator is. Um, And that usually, I use that to direct steroids at targets that are contributing to their pain instead of choosing, you know, to help me decide on which target to, to administer the steroid in. Okay. So we can minimize the dose of steroid that they're getting. and okay. Use it at the most effective ones.
0: And and for our listeners, that you know, um, one thing I do want to clarify is when somebody comes in talking about shoulder pain, you know, shoulder pain in patient A and shoulder pain in patient B may be vastly different. Oh yeah. Syndromes, pain generators, you know, root causes, and and your treatment options are going to be very different.
1: Extremely different. Okay. The way yeah the pathologies are different. The areas where you can put the medicine are different. The way they feel the pain are different. And it's, it's very challenging for patients to describe it because it's difficult. I'm, I'm, the perception of it is very difficult. Um, and then it's also challenging for f- clinicians to tease out what's really causing it or where it's coming from. And I often use a drawing of a body, a pain diagram, to help me with that. Um, because when they describe it, a person's hip, Person A's hip might not be the same as person B's hip. So if they say I have hip pain, it might not be actually over the hip joint. It might be something else. And I find it very difficult to tease that in words. However, I usually use this diagram where I have them point on their own body. And then I know in my mind what's underneath that area where they point it. And I use that diagram to mark where the pain is, what type of pain it is, and where it goes. And that helps me tease out what could be causing it because there's certain structures under that region where they pointed. Um,
0: so this pain diagram—that's the one that you were that you were teaching us about during the grand rounds, where the patient can tell you kind of. Uh, it's, it's, it's a two-dimensional drawing, but it rotates the image of the body, so essentially you get kind of three dimensions on the body, so they can tell you, well, it's the front, it's the back, it's the front of the hip, or the back of the hip, or the side of the hip, or the middle of the hip, or it's deep, or it's superficial, or it's very sharp, or it's kind of just light and dull, or it's electrical-type pain. So, so is, that, is that essentially what you're trying to tease out with these pain diagrams?
1: Exactly. The, the location of the pain. So the diagram is two-dimensional. However, there's pictures of each side of the body. Mm-hmm. And for it to be effective, you have to draw it appropriately. So you have to use each side of the body in the picture, whether it's the front, the side, or the back, and whether it radiates or extends into a different area. Okay. And then the quality of the pain is very important because there's different medicines that you would use for a burning or a tingling pain. Versus a sharp aching pain okay um, and the only per the only way we can tease that out is from the patient. I can't look at you and figure out is it causing a burning pain or is it causing a tingling pain or is it causing a numbness? okay they're all very different, and it means different things for what we do
0: okay, and this tool I think is is extraordinarily useful in something like a pain clinic. Um, in medical school, we're actually taught to always start off with patients. You know, regardless of your specialty, regardless of what it is that you're trying to do, essentially you're trying to help patients out, right? And patients are coming, and all of our documentation start off with chief complaint. Why is the patient yes. here, right? <laughs> so we're supposed to start off open-ended. Um, and yeah, definitely that's a place to begin. You know, when you first meet a patient, you know, kind of what brought you into the clinic. But pain syndromes are, you know. Very complex. Um, there's physical pain generators. There's central pain generators. There's peripheral pain generators. There's nerves, or you know, nerve type pain, neuropathic type pain versus nociceptive type pain. And patients can come in and they don't know, so they might be just bombarding you with information and kind of telling you, "Well, I didn't sleep well last night. Well, I don't. I'm not really eating well right now." Um, yeah, my physical activity is not great, yeah, I'm kind of stressed out at work, but I'm here because my shoulder hurts, but sometimes my neck hurts, but sometimes my lower back hurts, and sometimes my left knee hurts. So it's kind of like, it it becomes difficult with purely open-ended questions to really tease out, okay, what is, let's triage things, let's figure out what is the biggest problem here, um, and what can I do about that? Because, I mean, that's, that's what we're trying to do as medical professionals, is really, we're trying to improve our patients' lives, improve our patients' function, um, and kind of alleviate some of those pains so that they can get back to doing, you know, whatever it is that they do, you know, at home or at work and so on and so forth. So this particular tool, I have it right. I have the luxury of having it right in front of me. I know that through the medium of just audio, you can't see it, but it's, it's a drawing that has front side, each side and back of the body. Um, it's, uh, it's a a body that's in uh, anatomical position, and then a patient can kind of mark that up. Um, and I think if patients are, if if we explain to patients how to use this, they can more effectively communicate to us what it is that's going on, and help us diagnose and then you know consider our treatment options. Is that kind of a fair summary?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And it, it the open-ended question is is curious curious topic because with the pain diagram you open it up to where they can mark any part of the body right so if there is an issue in the head they can mark it if there's an issue in the toe you can mark it and it allows us to triage it to focus on the most important one so we can really drill down and figure out what's going on it's often not possible to treat all the different areas in one visit however it can clearly document the areas that we need to address and we can do it systematically in a few different visits. The other thing I will say, there's ways to use this serially. So over the course of treatment of a patient, you can see how it evolves with your treatments, with your injections, that pain diagram will change. And you'll see how the pain that used to go down the leg now doesn't go down the leg. Okay. And that might mean a different source of the pain. Okay, right? It might mean that you knocked out one of their sources of pain. with the last procedure, and if it doesn't go away, that might mean that you didn't knock out their pain, right? So it can be very useful going um, forward in the future. The other way it's really useful is if you have this in the chart, say two years later, the patient comes back, and they had pain going down their right leg to their big toe, and you did XYZ procedure, and you look at the follow-up pain diagram, that pain was gone, two years later, they draw you that exact same picture, I'm probably going to think that that same procedure would help them again. Okay. So it'll help me drill down on what I can offer that patient to effectively treat their pain.
0: So it helps you prospectively and retrospectively as well.
1: You got it. Okay. You got it.
0: Okay. Um, With these particular interventions, um, with putting needles in places, putting medication in places, are there any absolute contraindication situations where you never want to put a needle in or patients that it's not a good idea that the risks definitely outweigh the potential benefits of this particular treatment.
1: Right. There there are uh contraindications to injections per se. So depending on what you're injecting, sticking a needle in the area. Um you know what I wanted to focus on was more the the steroids itself. Are there are there because each injection will have its associated uh, contraindications, so it's difficult to tease out what the contraindications of each injection are, right? However, when we talk about the steroid or what you're injecting in, um, there are some contraindications. So if they're allergic to the steroid, we definitely don't do that. If they have a generalized infection in their body and you're thinking about doing any sort of steroid, oral versus injected, you generally don't want to do that because it's going to suppress your body's immune system, your ability to fight off the injection.
0: So even if if you're doing a local injection to the knee and somebody has some sort of pulmonary infection
1: at that time, you you use a grain of salt, but uh, I would say for an elective procedure, wait Mm -hmm. till their antibiotics are done. Okay. Right. There's no, unless you have to, uh, you know, there, there are some pressing issues, but if you're fighting an infection, there is a potential that a steroid can calm you, It can decrease your immune function, and it'll make it harder to fight that infection. Definitely, if you're thinking about an injection into a region and they have an infection in that region, you don't want to inject okay. steroids along the same lines. If you have an infected joint, they often or they're suspicious for an infected joint. You often, are are requested to pull out fluid to send it to the lab to test it in those situations you want to test that fluid before you put steroid there because the steroid is going to calm the immune function of that region and it can make that infection far worse. Generally what I would do is pull out the fluid uh, send it to the lab and then if it wasn't infected then I, I would bring them back and then inject steroid in that joint if that's a reasonable treatment for that condition. Okay. Um, the other contraindication for steroids, generally thought, is, is weight-bearing tendons. Steroids are thought to degrade the tendon. Multiple injections into the tendon are not supposed to be a good a good idea.
0: So you talked about that during the grand rounds. You were mentioning how in the past, um, kind of, at a, a lot of diagnoses were called tendonitis. Absolutely, it, it was just kind of like this big blanket term that was used. And we were, just because patients would feel better from it, not that necessarily it was good for them downstream, because like you mentioned earlier, this, the, the function of these particular compounds is, is you know, downstream. It's not an immediate effect.
1: Right. Downstream anti-inflammatory. That's what we're, that's what we're using the steroid for.
0: Yeah. And in the past, um, we were actually injecting patients directly into tendons. Is that correct?
1: Probably. A lot of what we did was without image guidance. Okay. So if they hurt in a region, it's reasonable to think about what's underneath that region of their pain, and then inject it with steroid, which is the most common agent that we had. Okay. Um, and we would assume that it was an inflamed tissue because they felt better after it. Okay. Right. The things changed as as imaging techniques evolved. You have better studies and you have clearer diagnoses. Especially with ultrasound, you can look at the tendon in real time and look and see. Does it... You can't really see if it's... Well, you could see if it's inflamed. You can see if there's neo-vessels. But more often, does it look thick? Um, does it have calcium adjacent to it? Does it look tendinopathic? That tendinopathy that we previously thought was always a tendonitis, so an inflammatory tendon issue, is most commonly not inflammatory anymore. and It's, it's a, a tendon that's sick, that's injured, that's stuck in a healing process that doesn't inflame itself it doesn't get out of that healing process and actually the way we oh, sorry the way we try to treat it nowadays is to try to kickstart that inflammatory process to heal it so it would be counterintuitive to put an anti-inflammatory medicine in it okay because the whole goal of the treatment is to restart that inflammatory cascade Okay. It's confusing, but um, it, I think it evolved with our imaging techniques and our ability to diagnose tendinopathy and the idea that when they sampled tissues that were thought to be tendinitis and looked at it under a microscope, they didn't see inflammatory cells. And if they don't see inflammatory cells, it's unlikely that an anti-inflammatory medicine would be appropriate for that tissue.
0: Okay. So, you touch upon something that I, and this is my personal opinion, um, but it is my podcast, so I'm going to go ahead and do
1: that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> um, Musculoskeletal ultrasound, is that kind of a cutting-edge technology right now? Is that something that's still developing, not really 100%, you know, there's no uniform, you know, 100% formal training in it, kind of the way that, you know... Um, when when pulmonologists put scopes into the lungs and the different you know bronchioles and the small airways, that's kind of standardized now. All anybody who goes to a pulmonology or a pulmonary fellowship is going to be trained in those in these pr- very standardized techniques. You know, there's rigorous guidelines put forth by the ACGME and the different you know co- the, the the College of Pulmonologists. Um, we don't really have that in musculoskeletal ultrasound. Um, even, even radiologists who go on to, to do fellowship training in musculoskeletal radiology, a lot of what their standardized training is in, is, is, um, you know, x-ray, MR, CT, and then those, uh, those different uh, modalities with and without contrast, but really musculoskeletal ultrasound,
1: is that something that's standardized or not yet? Is it still developing, um... No, that's a great question, great point. It's definitely evolving, and the the technology is evolving. So the probes are getting better, the penetration of the tissues are getting better, the ability to see structure, see pathology are getting better. Um, It hasn't really been standardized, and um, there's a lot of variability because it's user-dependent. It takes a lot of experience to learn how to use it, how to read it, how to look for pathology with it. And because there's so much variability with the probes, it also there's some probes that you won't be able to see pathology and you know, other ones that you will. So it, it's definitely an evolving process. However, I will say, my personal opinion is it, it is invaluable. It is invaluable for a, someone treating musculoskeletal complaints because there's so many times when um, you can't, or I, I lean on it to help me with make a diagnosis. Okay. One of the examples that I used in the lecture was looking for fluid. There are very few tools that will allow you to look for fluid dynamically. It's probably the only one, real time, you can see if there's fluid somewhere. Um, an inflamed joint, an effusion. Uh, if it gets big enough, you can use your physical exam skills to find it. But if it's small and it's in an area where you can't use that, the ultrasound can find it with the right technique. And I use it routinely to look for fluid and to help me diagnose what the underlying cause of the problem is. The other way I use it is, if I find an area that hurts in the body, typically you would palpate any region of the body that hurts when they come to see you, right? Palpate it, and then typically we would think about what's underneath it, right? Mm -hmm. The way I use the ultrasound is I put an X on their skin, put the probe down, i do the same thing i think about what's underneath it but then i also look i look to see what's there is there a tear is there fluid is there osteophyte is there something abnormal on that side uh and by abnormal i would compare it to the other side that doesn't hurt right Right. And if there is that would be a, a stronger diagnosis for me you know i tease out the diagnoses using the ultrasound definitely fluid is good soft tissue structures are good with the right probe and then um uh, looking at what's underneath the site of pain is very useful. Okay. And then the third part of it is, as we see new pathologies, we can get into these structures with smaller needles and with more accuracy. Okay. Right? So
0: you're saying less, less, I guess, trauma to the surrounding tissues, less risk of hitting something you don't want
1: to hit. Absolutely. And being much more precise in making a diagnosis. Okay. Because I can now differentiate different targets within the knee, okay. right? And by putting a little bit of lidocaine in different targets within the knee, we can tease out which is causing the pain and which isn't. That wouldn't be possible without ensuring that that needle is in a target. Okay. So it allows you to direct a needle to a target and determine if that's really a, a source of pain. Okay. So I would say in my practice, I would use it, it's invaluable. for the patients I treat.
0: So going back to recap what you were mentioning, I was asking about, um, you know, musculoskeletal ultrasound and kind of how it take, it, it, maybe it would take, uh, I'm going to cut this out. I was asking about musculoskeletal ultrasound and, um, its uses and its standardization as far as training, but there is no standardization Ah. right now. It's 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 really user dependent. Absolutely. Experience dependent. Absolutely. Which, which kind of that experience belongs to the user? You know how many yep. how many times have you scanned the knee? How many uh, clinically symptomatic knees have you seen? Yeah. Um, and then you were mentioning real time, you know, scanning and seeing dynamically what's going on with a with a patient's particular joint um, when you do something like a CT. Or like an MR, these are static images. So the patient is lying on a bed, sitting on a bed, and then this big machine is taking a whole lot of slices. Yeah, definitely. It's a whole lot of you know very thin um two-dimensional cuts of uh of of a particular joint, but the patient's not moving. As a matter of fact, they can't move or the image will be degraded during during Absolutely. those during those examinations. But with ultrasound, you know, once Once you get the plane that you want, once you have the probe looking at exactly what you want it to look at, you can actually move and range a joint and see what's going on dynamically. That's something that you can only do with ultrasound as far as my knowledge goes.
1: Absolutely. And one application of that is suppose someone has a click somewhere. Right. Right. There can be various reasons for a click around a joint. There aren't any you can do multiple MRIs in different positions and look for what's moving around, right? Right? Abnormally. However, it's much easier to look at an ultrasound and look for something to move dynamically. Okay. Uh, one instance of this would be a subluxing ulnar nerve. Okay. You can feel that. Uh, so clinically, we could palpate it and feel it. But it's a clear example of how ultrasound can show you. Dy- in a dynamic movement, how that nerve moves around, and you can apply that to different areas. It's just one example. In okay. that case, you can probably feel it with your own hands, but there's a lot of places where you can't. Okay. And um, this can be a very useful tool.
0: And for our patients out there, um, any ne- any big obvious negatives to to having you know your shoulder, your wrist, your knee, your neck, whatever, ultrasound as opposed to <laughs> X-rays, you know, you're told you shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't x-ray the same thing so many, so many, so many times, especially something like a CT. There's a whole lot of radiation. Does that happen with ultrasound?
1: Absolutely not. No, there's no risk associated with radiation exposure. It doesn't use radiation, so there's absolutely no risk. Um, The only thing you could have is you can, because it's dynamic, you often put joints into positions to look at structures when they're hurting, so you might feel pain with it because we're trying to put your joint into a position that hurts you to look at what's causing the pain okay right and that's something you should know about i will say that there's two types of ultrasound so ultrasound can be used in therapy for therapeutic effect uh, effect for muscle pain muscle spasm you can use it like heat Um, that's not what we're doing when we talk about using ultrasound to look at these different joints of the body and using it for injections. They're two different applications of ultrasound. We're using the ultrasound to diagnose things versus a therapist would be using ultrasound to work on muscle or myofascial pain, using it its properties with heat to help tissue recover. Okay. Two distinct things.
0: Okay. So one is diagnostic and one is therapeutic. Exactly. Okay. It's kind of an easier way to classify, you know, one versus the other, absolutely. And I mean, um, I know from the things that I uh, that I'm being taught throughout residency, the papers that I'm reading. Um, it, it was kind of a leading question when I was asking you about, you know, is this kind of cutting edge? And the reason that I bring that up is because there's so many papers out there. A lot of this stuff that's actually coming out of like Germany and places in in, uh, in Europe, talking about sono elastography, where we're using ultrasound with various amounts of pressure being applied when you're pushing down to, to assess the quality of particular soft tissues within a joint. Mm -hmm. Um, or neovascularization is another thing that is still currently being researched. You were mentioning not everything's a tendonitis. You know, we're using the term now tendinopathic, um, which is also a blanket term, but not as, Just saying, well, it's inflamed, let's just put some steroid in it. Now we're saying, well, now there's something wrong with it, but okay, let's try to figure out what's wrong with it. And um, one of the things that um, some researchers are are finding, I think a lot of the work is uh, coming out of um, Harvard and Stanford and some of the Ivy League programs here in the US, um, where they're looking at neovascularization and they are looking at whether small blood vessels are sprouting in some of these tissues, some of these tendons. And is that, does that correlate with a soft tissue that's in that, you know, feed forward bad cycle of healing and it just won't heal. Um, you know, you've had patients, you, you have patients, I mean, I'm sure it happens pretty often in the, in the pain clinic where patients come in and they're like, yeah, I've just had kind of a bum shoulder for 20 years. Um, and maybe they've got some sort of tendinopathic process that's just been cycling and, and, and the particular tendon or ligament is not really healing well. Um, so, I mean, these, these are definitely things that are cutting edge, they're still being researched. How much promise is there, we don't know, right. but I mean, the question is out there. There's, we're seeing some significant findings, at least they look significant on, on ultrasound examination, what do they mean? And I think that's kind of what we're trying to tease out because if we can figure out what they mean, we can elucidate some of these processes a little bit more clearly and and essentially do what it is that we want to do, and that is help patients kind of get better, you know, improve their function, decrease their pain levels.
1: So. Absolutely, yeah.
0: Well, um, I think we're running out of time a little bit. I know we started talking about steroids, kind of <laughs> the history, yeah, some of the differences, of off, but but, um, but no, I mean... Th- Um, thank you for taking the time to talk to me, talk with us. Um, is there anything in particular that you also want to hit before we, before we go?
1: Yeah. A lot of patients would ask you the duration that the steroid will work. Okay. When you're talking about an injection, how long is it going to work? Okay. And there's a lot of variables that are involved there. Um, it's hard to tell the patient what the studies show is it's not long term. Okay. I don't think, uh, I think that's kind of agreed upon and it decreases with time depending on where you're putting it. Um, you're not expecting years of, of benefit from the steroid. Okay? So this
0: isn't a this isn't a fix at all. This this
1: it, it, absolutely it's not a fix at all. However, it's a good anti-inflammatory in a place that's inflamed. Okay. okay. A pa- a place and it's hard to tell if a pla- place is inflamed, but clinically, if they have a flare, if they have knee pain and all of a sudden it flares up that to me would signify that there are inflammatory cells there, and that's kind of one way I would decide on whether or not to use a steroid. That might be a person I'm more likely to use a steroid on because I believe there's inflammatory cells there, so they might be amenable to an anti-inflammatory medicine.
0: So somebody that does have that chronic knee pain, then they have a flare, and you think this is somebody that, that I think will definitely benefit from this particular therapeutic intervention... You give them the therapeutic intervention. What else do you tell them? Because understanding that, you know, this injection is not going to fix you, it may calm down your symptoms, but what, what else are you going to try to tell the patient that usually needs to be done? Are there, is there therapy that needs to be done? Are there other physical modalities that need to be done?
1: Yeah. You know, a lot of times I use the injections to facilitate therapy. I a lot of patients can't tolerate the therapy they need okay. to rehab a joint, rehab a muscle, whatever it is. Uh, it just hurts too much, and it's understandable that it hurts too much. The first thing we would try are oral medicines, Tylenol, you know, something like that. And and on our rehab unit, we use it all the time for patients that have soreness. If, if I go to the gym, it probably, you know, it'd be sore the next day, and they're here, uh, an inpatient might be here five days in a row, right. working out. It's reasonable that they have muscle pain from that okay if if that doesn't work I try to look at areas underneath it that are hurting um, and then I might direct medicines there and I would tell them the goal of that injection is to facilitate your ability to do the therapy I want you to do the therapy to do your rehab and that's integral when we when I do these injections is that there's some therapy they're doing their exercises it might be their home exercises or they're staying active and adopting healthy lifestyles you know to treat their other problems that they have
0: so usually and again i may be leading you here i'm not a lawyer in court (laughs) but um usually these chronic pain syndromes they're biomechanical in nature is is that fair to say
1: a lot of them are yeah a a lot of them are kind of
0: there was a root biomechanical cause that kind of got you there but it was like long-term poor form let's call it that And then we're able to do something to calm things down so that then you can try to correct that form. I know it's a very general statement, very general, and we can't apply this to every kind of pain syndrome. Um, But do you think that that's kind of an appropriate, very generalized way for, you know, maybe patients to see it? Hey, I have low back pain. Okay. I've had this for years. I was a bus driver for a long time. I was seated in this bad position, you know, not really activating my core, just kind of leaning forward for 8, 10 hours a day. Um, I did that for 20 years, and my back's killing me now. You know, I'm 56 years old now. I've been doing this since I was 35, and here I am in your clinic. And you tell me, okay, I can do something that's definitely going to bring down your level of pain to some degree, Um, but there's other things that we need to do To really try to maximize the effect of any intervention that I do, is that an appropriate way to look at things?
1: Yes, I think you know what we as physiatrists we try to do comprehensive treatment plans. We try to incorporate, you know, bracing, medicines, therapy, injections, and testing when we treat a patient. And it's my opinion that the best outcomes are when you combine all of those together. So. You combine the therapy with their exercises, with the bracing, with the um, appropriate injections, and then you get better outcomes. So I would try to use these and counsel the patients that you know we're doing this injection to try to help you do your exercises to get through your day, to walk down the street more,
0: okay.
1: to you know do play tennis, the ten- you know the activity that you like doing. We're using these procedures to help you do the things that make you happy. Okay. Right? ...or to keep your body fit. Okay. It's The injection's not going to cure the underlying problem. Okay. Unless there's inflammation there, it'll help that. Okay. But if it's arthritis, it's not going to cure the arthritis. Okay. And that's something that needs to be discussed. Okay. If the steroid doesn't cure the arthritis. It might cure inflammation that's causing pain associated from an arthritis flare. Okay. That was a lot, but that's really what it does. It can... If the arthritis is there and it flares up, the steroid might help because it calms down the inflammation associated with the flare. It doesn't change the cartilage that's gone, or that's degrading. The weight loss does. Okay. Help that from progressing. Okay. Does that make sense? No, it makes sense. It makes
0: sense. So do you think there's, again, leading? (laughs) (laughs) I'm I'm getting good at this. Maybe I should have gone to law school. (laughs) Um, Do you think that there's a benefit if we got, you know, a specialist you know, like you, involved on the inpatient side a little bit sooner in the process, you know when somebody's admitted they have a chronic pain syndrome, and it's really hampering them from participating in their in their rehab therapies. do you think that if if we got involved a little bit sooner, we 'd be able to you know get more benefit out of the time that they 're spending in the rehab
1: unit i i think yes, I think they're um Whenever we do any intervention or any treatment, we're looking, as a physiatrist, you're looking for functional benefit. How do you improve the patient's quality of life by whatever you're doing, right? One of the scenarios I see where steroids can be used very effectively or getting a pain person involved is when you have a set time when you're in therapy, you want to maximize your ability to participate and to get the most benefit from the therapist. They're trained in that area, in that field, and that's the whole reason for seeing them. If there's anything you can offer the patient patient while they're in therapy to facilitate their ability to participate, to improve their interaction with their therapist, to do their exercises better, I think it's reasonable, and it'll hopefully improve their functional outcome. One thing probably is getting a pain person involved earlier if they have a focal pain okay one thing is probably if it is focal and it's inflamed putting steroids in there because the duration of the steroids is short-term it might coincide probably does with the amount of time they're in the therapy okay ideally that's the time you want to have that steroid there's when they're getting their rehab to improve their function you don't want the pain to limit it so that would be a very good application of a steroid injection would be a patient who's involved actively involved in therapy and has pain that's inhibiting their participation okay for me that's an easy decision as long as there's no contraindications and i have a reasonable idea that there's something inflamed to go after it with a steroid and
0: definitely getting involved as early as possible because there's still that you know lag time for the steroid to t- to really kick in
1: Right. And anything we do, there's going to be a lag. You know, it's going to take time for me to see the patient, evaluate them, get imaging, figure out what it is. If it is a steroid that I choose, there is that three day, you know, period before it starts working. So we don't want to lose time. Right. Um, our inpatients are really here for a finite period of time, three weeks. And that's, that's their time to get the maximum therapy that they're ever going to get for that condition. Got it. So anything we can do to Improve that um, is in our best interest, and it's in the patient's best best interest. So, getting a consult in earlier would be helpful, and then, you know, thinking about using steroids for things that might be inflamed, inhibiting their participation is a reasonable thing. Okay, got it. <laughs>
0: Got it. Um, so the world of pain, the world of steroids and interventions and trying to get people back on their feet and doing the things that, you know, they care about living their lives. Um, anything else you want to touch on?
1: No, no, this is very good. I hope, I hope it's helpful. I appreciate it. You know, well, Dr. Sebastian, thank you for your time. Yeah. Thank you. All right, sir.
0: (laughs) And we'll see you next time. Sounds good. We thank you for listening. We hope you found today's presentation enlightening. And as always, if there's a particular topic you would like to have discussed, feel free to email us. Good night. Ladies and gentlemen, as we close another session of our podcast, I would like to make it clear that we make every effort to broadcast correct information. We will double check facts and assertions, but we do ask our listeners to realize that medicine is a constantly changing science and an art. One physician may have an entirely different way of doing things from another, and any views expressed are solely those of the person expressing them. We welcome any comments, suggestions, and correction of errors. We do not accept any money, services, or sponsorship otherwise from pharmaceutical, supplement, or device companies. By listening to this podcast or reading this blog, you agree not to use this podcast or blog as medical advice to treat any medical condition in either yourself or others, including but not limited to patients that you may be treating consult your own physician for any medical issues that you may be having. This entire disclaimer also applies to any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog. Under no circumstances shall McGovern Medical School, any guests or contributors to the podcast or blog, or any employees, associates or affiliates of UT Health be held responsible for damages arising from use of this podcast or blog. We are here to stimulate the dialogue. We are here to get the wheels spinning. We are here to spark new questions in the field of medicine. Thank you for listening.